Hello, folks. Good morning. Welcome to the fellowship. Um, last week we discussed Nahum chapter one. Sort of. Uh, this week we're going to look at the rest of it, verses two and three. Um, if just a few things to remind you, kind of get us back into it. Everything. Um, I don't want to cover all of the background we did last week, but Nahum is the sequel to Jonah. Um, it is about a hundred or so years later after Jonah was written, and you know, in Jonah, Nineveh repented, and we know that. Um, and Jonah was not too happy about it, but then a hundred years later, their repentance—they had repented of their repentance. They were back to their wicked ways, and so we have the book of Nahum, and Nahum writes this about. Um, not quite maybe 50 years before their actual fall of Assyria, the actual fall of, of Nineveh. And Nahum predicts that. He writes about their fall. And so um, that's what we're going to look at. Real quick, before we get into it, uh, in, in Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 15, the verses, the verse numbers in Hebrew don't line up with the verse numbers in English. Now, when it was originally written, all of Scripture was originally written, there were no verse numbers at all. So these are just the verse numbers people put on that after the fact. And so the same words are all there. It's just how they break up the verses and chapters and things like that. And there's a lot that goes into how they broke all this down back in the day and everything. But you'll you might notice on the screen a little bit. So... Chapter 1, verse 15, through the end of chapter 2, the verse numbers in English and Hebrew are different. And then chapter 3 gets back on track. And they're, they're the same again moving forward after that. So uh, chapter 1, um, last week, if you remember, it really focused on the decree of Nineveh's fall. Um, about how Nineveh is going to fall in this decree. And it ended with the... Um, the guy that, the messenger that comes out and announces it at the end. And it's it, Nineveh, is, or not Nineveh, Nahum, if you remember, is a divine warrior hymn. And we discussed the three different categories that those hymns fall under. Um, one category is a hymn that's sung before you go into battle. The second one is a song sung while you're in the middle of battle. And then the third one is the song sung after battle is complete, after it's over. And that's the category that Nahum falls in. And Nahum writes this as though they've already won the battle, even though at the time of writing it, they haven't fallen. It's 50 years later when Assyria actually falls. And um, not only that, but he wrote this at the height of the Assyrian Empire. At the, as they're the most strongest, most powerful nation, Nahum writes his book. And... Uh, and he writes it as though they've already fallen. It's pretty incredible. And then so chapter 1 deals with the decree of Nineveh's fall. Chapter 2 and 3 deal with the actual destruction. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So Nahum chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Lord, I pray that you open up the scripture to us. Uh, some of these texts are very hard. And I pray that um, you just help us keep it in perspective of, of what's going on here. Um, but also... Uh, let it be a warning to us that you are, you are a great and powerful and mighty God. You're a jealous God, 
and you are vengeful against those that oppose you, and and we know that, and we um, we worship you for that. But I pray that you we don't get too um, beaten down by this text this morning. I pray that it can actually end up being an encouraging text for us. And so um, just be with us as we receive this word from you this morning. We pray this things in Jesus' name, Amen. So Nahum chapter two. Look at first couple of verses. Um, Chapter or verse one of chapter two, it says, "An enemy who will scatter you, Nineveh, has advanced against you." So this word "scatter" literally tra- translates "scatter." There's nothing too exciting there. Um, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word they use, the phrase they use, uh, "one who scatters," um, can also be translated as "one who blows hard," and I think that's a really funny. Uh, description of of this uh like you know we all know a blowhard and that's something we don't really want to be but uh the enemy of Nineveh is one who blows hard I get the picture of when we were kids and I mean some of us may still do that I'm pointing at myself but when we were kids and we pick a dandelion and blow it and all the seeds would scatter off of that um that's the picture I get with with this idea of, of one who blows hard and so the seeds just float away. So this is the picture um, with the Babylonians and the Medes and some of their other enemies that have assembled against them are going to do to the Syrians. It says they've advanced against you. And it says, guard the rampart, watch the road, prepare yourselves for battle, muster your mighty strength. So they're, this is like not really a warning to the Assyrians, but it's more of just these guys are coming. They're going to scatter you. Do what you're. Do what you're. Prepare yourself for battle. Muster your mighty strength. Um, maybe this is the only real warning, if you want to call it that. Um, guarding the rampart. That I didn't know. I had to look that up. So I'm not going to assume we all know that, but you you probably did. But it's a fortified city wall. That's what a rampart is. And I've heard that you know every time we sing the national anthem. I think um, that word's in there. But um, <laughs> I, I never knew. So it's a fortified city wall. It's it's a protection against you. So guard that. Uh, it says, you know, watching the road, preparing for battle, mustering their strength. All of these things, no matter what they do, and, and he discusses other things that maybe they want to try to do as their enemy is attacking them later in this text this morning. Um, but it's all futile. No matter what they do, it's all going to be futile because the one really leading these other armies, these their enemies against them, is this divine warrior, the Lord. And so it's all futile, it doesn't matter. In chapter 1, we saw that no one can resist the fierce anger of the Lord, that they're going to be totally consumed. Um, you know, even with that messenger that came and proclaimed their deliverance, um, announcing their victory over Assyria, we know that it's all going to be futile because victory is already won, even before it, the battle has even happened. And verse 2 says, For the Lord is about to restore the majesty of Jacob, as well as the majesty of Israel, though their enemies have plundered them and have destroyed their fields. So the Lord had humbled Jacob and Israel through the judgment of their captivity and hardships, but now he's going to restore their majesty. He's going to restore the majesty of Jacob and Israel, or of Judah and Israel, if you want to say it that way. Um, Remember, this is during the time of the divided kingdom, the 12 tribes you had. Um, they divided up. So 10 northern tribes in Israel and then the two southern tribes there in Judah. Um, and 
that's during the time of what most of these prophets are writing, I believe, um, throughout these minor prophets. But um, so Israel had been totally taken into captive. Judah, the southern kingdom, also want to be referred to as Jacob, had not been totally taken into captive by the Assyrians, but they had a lot of their cities, you know, destroyed and plundered and things. They had, they had experienced hardships as well. But even though this had happened, and that was judgment against them. That wasn't like, oh, the Assyrians are really bad, and look, God didn't even protect his people. No, God was judging his people, and he allowed the Assyrians to come and be part of that judgment against them. Now he's saying he's going to restore their majesty. He's going to restore them. Um, even though their enemies have plundered them and destroyed their fields, now is the time he's going to restore them. Um, so long ago, when this is sort of a transition into verse 3, but long ago when like sailing ships ruled the seas, um, this captain and his crew were always in danger of being boarded by pirates from pirate ships. And so one day they were out sailing and they saw a pirate ship that had a boarding party that was heading their way and the crew became really worried but the captain remained calm. He bellowed to his first mate, bring me my red shirt. So the first mate quickly got the captain's red shirt and he put it on and they led his crew again battle against these pirates. Um, although they had some casualties among the crew, the pirates were defeated. Later that day, the lookout screamed that there were two pirate vessels sending two boarding parties toward their ships. The crew was nervous, but the captain again, he remained very calm. Uh, calm as ever, he bellowed, bring me my red shirt. And once again, the battle was on. The captain and his crew fought off the pirates, the boarding parties. And though this time the, there were more casualties that occurred, um, you know, it, it was a lot worse of a battle, but they, they prevailed. Uh, weary from the battle, the men that night, um, they sat around the deck, um, sort of recounting the day's uh, events. And an ensign looked at the captain and asked, Sir, why do you call for your red shirt in battle? And the captain, giving the ensign a look that only a captain can give, he explained, If I'm wounded in battle, the red shirt does not show the blood. So you men will continue to fight unafraid. The men sat in silence. They were amazed at the courage of the, of the man. Um, their captain just became even larger in life to them. As the day, as, sorry, as the dawn came the next morning, the lookout screamed that there were pirate ships, 10 of them, all with boarding parties on their way. The men became silent and looked to the captain, their leader, for his usual command. The captain, calm as ever, bellowed, bring me my brown pants. That's just a joke. Um, but basically, uh, here, in, here in verse 3, it says, The shields of his warriors are dyed red. Their mighty soldiers are dressed in scarlet garments. Their chariots are in flashing metal fittings. On the day of battle, the soldiers brandish their spears. So these warriors that are coming to attack, their shields are dyed red. Um, maybe they're dyed red from blood from previous battles they were in. Maybe they're dyed red because it's like, Hey, we're coming to attack, and, and red is like a scary color, you know. Um, but it says they're they're dressed in scarlet garments. And that scarlet is, um, there's a lot to that. One is maybe they're dressed in scarlet like the ship captain to hide the blood if they got wounded in battle. Uh, but also it was a very expensive garment. Um, it wasn't, 
as expensive as like purple, which was normal royalty kind of a thing. But scarlet was a very um, expensive garment still. And that's that's what these soldiers are dressed in. So it's like these, these soldiers are well outfitted is what this is trying to um, tell us. It says their chariots are, in, are flashing metal fittings on the day of battle. So they even they have metal put around their typical wooden chariots to protect them even further. It says the soldiers brandish their spears. They're waving their spears. And verse 4 says the chariots race madly. Um, that word madly is literally the word is ill. And so um, they race madly or they're ill through the streets. Um, it reminds me of that Run DMC song, You Be Illin'. So they're just going through in the streets, just madly racing through. It says they push back and forth in the broad plazas. They look like lightning bolts. They dash here and there like flashes of lightning. This seems very chaotic and overwhelming with just these chariots that are just going so fast. It's like a blaze of light as the light shines off of their um, the metal that's on their chariots and whatnot. Verse 5 says, the commander, offer, the commander orders his officers. They stumble as they advance. They stumble as they advance. It seems like, aren't these guys sure-fitted or sure-footed, I mean? Or is it because they're... Uh, you know, maybe they're scared in battle. No, these guys are stumbling because they're having to step over dead bodies. And that's why they're stumbling um, during this battle. Um, there, there's so many slain Assyrians that they're having to step over these dead bodies. So they stumble as they advance. Um, the rest of verse 5 says, They rush to the city wall and they set up a covered siege tower. So a siege tower is, um, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it in, in tons of movies, um, but it's like this this structure that they would build on the battlefield and they would, it would either roll or they could carry it and move it forward and would protect them from the arrows coming above. Sometimes uh, we're familiar with like the covering over a battering ram that's coming up to the city walls. They put a covering over it so that, um, you know, rocks or things that are thrown down on top isn't going to, isn't going to harm them. But this is, this is just literally a platform that allows them to get close enough to the city walls that they can start, um, tearing at the foundation so that wall will crumble and they'll be protected from what's ever, you know, to come from above. And verse 6 says, the sluice, the sluice gates are open, the royal palace is deluged and dissolves. So uh, Nineveh employed, a, and we talked about this in the intro last week if you remember, but they, they employed a system of dams and sluice gates. So they had a couple rivers that ran through the city and what happened over time is those rivers were known to flood. And so what one king did a few kings before um, before this time, what one king did is he, he dammed up one of the rivers and made a reservoir so he could control the flow of the water in that river through the city. Um, because it, that's, that river would flood sometimes and it would get up to the, the gates and the walls of the city and cause erod- erosion. And so that city beca- that city wall became unstable. So he redirected those um, those rivers and in the process they they had different like sort of double gates that allowed the, the water to flow different places and things um, but this is saying the sluice gates are open so it's just like the whole reservoir that they meant for protection is open and it's just flowing through and we know from uh, from history it seems uh, according to classical tradition at least um, before Nineveh fell, there was a succession of very high rainfalls that just helped to uh, make everything even even worse for them. That 
you know, the Lord was active in preparing for the destruction of the city by having all this rainfall come through and this waters rushed through and the, the rivers were swelled, the reservoir was breached um, throughout all this. And then, uh, so yeah, so the, the sluice gates are open, the royal palace is deluged and dissolves. Um, verse 7 says, Nineveh is taken into exile and is led away. Her slave girls moan like doves while they beat their breasts. Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, but now her people are running away. So these various pools in the city, you know, they provided comfort for the people. They could go there and relax and drink. They could swim. Um, you know, water is a good thing. It provides, you know, satisfaction for thirst. It helps us clean things. It provides life. Um, but, you know, as we saw with Harvey a few years ago, too much water is not so exciting it's, it's a bad thing you know, when when harvey hovered over houston for whatever it was like maybe two or three days or whatever it was and just flooded everything um that was not that exciting it caused great damage um and you know the city of nineveh they didn't have a cajun army coming to rescue them they didn't have anybody coming to help them out at all and first, verse 8 goes on to say uh, she cries out stop stop but no one turns back so no one is coming uh, people aren't coming back to help them, and no one else is coming to, to help them either. Verse 9 says, Her conquerors cry out, Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, there's no end to the treasure. Riches of every kind, a precious thing. Um, archaeologist records actually back this up. Um, when they began excavating in the 1840s, the city of Nineveh, uh, they you know they were excited. What, what kind of gold or silver or other treasures are we going to find? And they found absolutely nothing. They found nothing because the city had been completely plundered. In fact, there were, uh, in doing research for all this, I found um, the King Ashurbanipal. He had a pretty extensive library that had all sorts of um, things written down on, on stones. And they burned some of those stones, but some of those actually survived. Um, they're all, I think they're in the British Museum in London. But... Uh, Nobody's spent a lot of time translating those things, but there's old, um, old stories that are that are written on there and things. Uh, very few of them have been translated, um, but that was it just these stone tablets with the cuneiform carved into them is about the only thing that survived um, during during this whole attack. Verse ten says destruction, devastation, desolation. Hearts faint, knees tremble, every stomach churns. All, the, all their faces have turned pale. Uh, this destruction, devastation, desolation, um, each of these words used here is used in the feminine form, um, which you know makes sense. Usually uh, we refer to things in the feminine form. Boats, cities, they're she's, right? Uh, I took her out last weekend and we trolled around the lake, fishing, whatever you want to say. Um, but, but that's for this, used of this city, Destruction, devastation, desolation are all in the feminine form because um, it's it's really a a slight at Nineveh where the destruction and desolation and devastation and I put those in wrong order just then but all these things that happened to them um, it in from the Lord's perspective it really wasn't that strong of a battle on His part to destroy the mightiest nation at the time and so. Um, that's why it's personified as this. Uh, and then we get here to chapter 2, 
And we'll see it again in chapter 3, but the Lord is taunting the Assyrians. Um, I don't think that's always how we like to picture God as one that's you know taunting people. Um, we like the, more, the picture of a more loving God. Um, I've always thought it's funny whenever Elijah taunts the bell worshipers, you know, and he's like, where is your God? Maybe he's on the toilet or, you know, whatever he says about them. Um, but when Elijah taunts them, he's only able to taunt them because the Lord is backing him up. You know, the Lord has already displayed his power to the, the bell worshipers. Um, so it's like uh, I get the picture of like Simba from The Lion King whenever the hyenas are taunting Simba and he's trying to let out a roar, but he's just a young lion cub. I almost said a boy, but he's just a young lion cub. And so he can't conjure up that scary adult roar. And then Simba, or not Simba, Mufasa's dad walks up behind him as the and the hyenas get a little scary because they see Mufasa. Simba doesn't know he's there. And he tries to let out this little roar. It's just a little puny roar again. But Mufasa roars behind him. And the hyenas run off scared because they know. And Simba thinks it's him that's roaring, but it's not. Well, God doesn't have anyone standing behind him. Um, he's the one that is making these taunts. He's the divine warrior that's taunting those who oppose him. Verse 11 and following here says, Where now is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? When the lion, lioness, and lion cub once proud, where are the lion, lioness, and lion cub once proud, and no one disturbed them? The lion tore apart as much prey as his cubs needed, and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his lairs with prey, and his dens with torn flesh. So Nineveh was once this great lion of a city, um, doing as it pleased, and now they've been just brought to their knees. It's like, where, where is this lion? You know, where, what's going on? It used to do all this stuff. You know, what's happening here? Um, I, I, I know that's not how we like to think about God, but I still think this is great because... Um, I don't know. I like trash talk. It's always one of my favorite things in sports. When you see those videos of NFL players that are mic'd up and they're, you know, jab, taking jabs at other players and things, it's always it's always really funny to me. Um, sometimes it does, it's not too great, but now we have this battle cry of the divine warrior. Verse thirteen says, "I'm against you," declares the Lord of heaven's armies. I will burn your chariots with fire. The sword will devour your, your young lions. You will no longer prey upon the land. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. To me, there's a lot here. You know, you know, it's one thing to oppose God. It's another thing to oppose God to the point where you wear out his patience. And then it's a whole other thing to get to the point where God's God voices the words. He's not just... Thinking it, it's just not—it's not just his attitude toward you, or toward them, I should say. But he's actually voicing the words, "I am against you." That's a hard pill to swallow. But that's what he says here, verse thirteen: "I am against you," declares the Lord of heaven's armies. So, yeah, I don't think we should make a mistake on this. Those who oppose God, He is against. Uh, Colossians one twenty one says, "And you were at one time strangers and enemies in your minds, as expressed through your evil deeds." And then as we get into chapter 3 here, um, the, you know, not only do the verses, the verse numbers in English and Hebrew line back up again, but we get this picture of the actual destruction. Um, we see the reason for the judgment here in verse 1, um, chapter 3. It says, Woe to the city guilty of bloodshed. She is full of lies. She is filled with plunder. She has hoarded her spoil. 
And verse 2 and 3 gives us a picture of the destruction. It says, The chariot drivers will crack their whips. The chariot wheels will shake the ground. The chariot horses will gallop. The war chariots will bolt forward. Verse 3, The charioteers will charge ahead. Their swords will flash and their spears will glimmer. Their spears will glimmer. Sorry. And there will be many people slain. There will be piles of the dead and countless casualties. Many of the people will stumble, stumble over the corpses. We saw back in chapter 2, verse 5, how the soldiers were stumbling as they advanced. Here it only seems to be worse is the point that there's like piles of the dead um, all, all around them. And so they're just stumbling more as they're trying to just go and slaughter more people. It's very, very dark. Um, but that's, that's the Bible here. So the first part about the charioteers cracking their whips with their swords flashing and spears glimmering, um, it's not just for show. It's not just like they're waving their swords around that's for show it's like i think it's from the perspective of the of the assyrians it's like all they saw was a flash of light off of the sword as it came and the next thing they know they're dead you know um, i think maybe in today's text it's like uh you know somebody just saw the flash of around the muzzle and then they wake up in the hospital with a gunshot wound to their gut you know um except you know the assyrians aren't waking up in the hospital they're they're waking up in a much worse place. Um, in verse 4 through 7, we have another taunt. Um, and this time it, it clues us in you know, further to the reason for the judgment. Um, this is why he's taunting them. It says, Because you have acted like a wanton prostitute, a seductive mistress who practices sorcery, who enslaves nations by her harlotry and entices people by her sorcery. So it seems that not only were the Assyrians strong and mighty, um, they were mighty enough to conquer any city, but uh, their tactics weren't always brute force. They would go in and sort of make nice with their buddy up to another kingdom. And then once they, were, once they had access, then they would just take it over. They would overthrow them with force. In verse nine, or sorry, verse 5 here, God again declares that he's against them. Uh, verse 5 says, I'm against you, declares the Lord of heaven's armies. I will strip off your clothes. I will show your nakedness to the nations and shame and your shame to the kingdoms. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt. I will make you a public spectacle. Everyone who sees you will turn away from you in disgust. They will say, Nineveh has been devastated. Who will lament for her? There will be no one, there will be no one to comfort you. So this is pretty, I mean, as far as a taunt goes, this is, this is on up there. I think this, I don't, I don't want to say this ranks up with a quote from a movie, but um, at the end of the Princess Bride, whenever the man in black is sort of recovering and he insults the Prince Humperdinck, and I don't know if you've seen the movie or not, but he has a great insult where he's just telling him, like, the prince wants to fight to the death, and he says no to the pain, and he describes what the pain means, like, I'm going to cut off your, your nose and your eyes and all these, your hands, and the prince is like, of course, and probably my ears next. He's like, no, I'm going to leave your ears. Because whenever people see you, they're going to come and they're going to say, what is that thing? And just all these children will cry out in fear of what you've become um, with this, you know, missing a nose and all these things. And and that's like, that's what it means to fight to the pain. It's very, it's very good taunt. Um, and that's what I think this, again, I want to say that the Bible ranks up with a movie quote, but. I like that. I think this is great too. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt. Um, it's definitely better than saying your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. 
Uh, verse 8 through 11 here it describes how they will suffer the same fate as Thebes. So incidentally, Thebes, the city in Egypt, they were uh, a city that the Assyrians actually conquered. And so, um, and it was, it was more fortified than Nineveh. Let's look at verse 8. It says, You are no more secure than Thebes. She was located on the banks of the Nile. The water surrounded her. Her rampart was the sea. The water was her wall. Cush in Egypt had limitless strength. Put and the Libyans were among her allies. So she had very mighty, strong allies. And, um, and Nineveh, the Assyrians were still able to conquer, them, conquer Thebes. Uh, even through all this, or since it says, yet she went into ex captivity as an exile. Even her infants were smashed to pieces at the head of every street. So that's, that's dark. Uh, but it shows exactly how atrocious the Syrians were. You know, they were, they were cruel, cruel people. We discussed it last week, um, just, just how cruel they were. And this just shows exactly how, how, how bad, how wicked they were. Um, and and there, you know, Thebes was more secure, more fortified than Nineveh. Yet Nineveh thinks you're gonna, you know, we're better, you know, we're not gonna be able to, we're not gonna be able to withstand this. Is the message to them basically? And at the end of verse ten says they cast lots for her her nobility. All her dignitaries were bound with chains. You too will act like drunkards. You will go into hiding. You too will seek refuge from the enemy. So this imagery of drunkenness, it's frequently used to describe defeat in battle. Um, it's appropriate imagery. If you think about it, drunkards pass out and wine drools out of their mouths. Somebody that's defeated in battle, a slain warrior falls down with blood flowing out of their mouths. So that's the, that's the imagery there where it says, you too will act like drunkards. And then uh, verses 12 through 15, yeah. It says, uh, this is about the Assyrians' defenses will fail. So all these fortifications that they thought they had, that they, you know, like I described last week, they had the 100-foot wall going around their city that was, you know, wide enough for three chariots to race around. They had a, a very extensively wide moat around the entire city for even more protection. Um, it says that, verse 12 describes it as this, as this, all your fortifications will be like fig trees with first ripe fruit. They are shaken; their figs will fall into their mouth and of the eater, will fall into the mouth of the eater. So very, uh, very weak. I don't know if you've ever been to a fig tree where, or any kind of a tree, fruit tree, and being able to shake it a little bit, and the fruit just starts falling off. You start hearing the, the thumps all around. Um, I had experience with a persimmon tree one time. I was way past ripe it was very rotten and we were we were you know just hitting a branch and several persimmons were falling off and then uh yeah so it was you can imagine how like how weak it was for that fruit to fall that this is how their fortifications are just going to fall down um verse 13 says your warriors will be like women in your midst the gates of your land will be wide open to your enemies fire will consume the bars of your gates Draw yourselves water for a siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Trample the mud and tread the clay. Make mud bricks to strengthen your walls. Again, all of this is just um, futile for them. All of, all of these things that, that any kind of defense they can make is, is just futile. Verse 15 says, There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust would. 
then the Syrian defenders will flee. This is what we see here. Those that were trying to defend on the Syrian side, they're going to flee. And that's what we're going to see here. Um, I guess the rest of verse 15 and moving forward, it says, Multiply yourself like young locusts. Multiply yourself like the flying locusts. Increase your merchants more than the stars of heaven. They are like the young locust that sheds its skin and flies away. Your, your courtiers are like locusts. Your officials are like a swarm of locusts. They encamp in the walls on a cold day, yet when the sun rises, then fly away, and no one knows where they are. So if you remember back in Joel, we saw just how destructive locusts could be. Here, locusts are used to show how weak these soldiers can really be. Uh, you know, they probably get this picture of, you know, oh, your, what does it say? Your officials are like a swarm of locusts. They're like, oh, wow. But they're a swarm of locusts that are hiding in the walls on a cold day. You know, they're not, they're, they're fleeing away. It says that they, uh, your lo young locusts, uh, they're like young locusts that shed its skin and flies away. Um, they're hiding in the walls on it. They're encamping in the walls on a cold day. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. And so they're not this mighty swarm of locusts as we saw in, in Joel. They're, they're actually a weak bunch of soldiers. And then we have the concluding verses here, 18 through 18 and 19, I guess. It says, Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your officers are slumbering. Your people are scattered like sheep on the mountain, and there is no one to re regather them. Your destruction is like an incurable wound. Your demise is like a fatal injury. All those, sorry, all who hear what has happened to you will clap their hands for joy, for no one has ever escaped your endless cruelty. So their destruction is like an incurable wound. It's it's not going. They're not going to recover from this. In other words, there's no recovery that they're going to be able to make um, after this. Even though even if there was a small remnant of soldiers that were able to flee or whatnot, there's no one to go and gather them up. There's no one to go and say, hey. Let's regroup, let's reorganize, and let's you know start making some weapons again. There's nobody to do that again. And so um, it says, All who hear what has happened to you will clap their hands for joy, for no one has ever escaped your endless cruelty. The one, I don't know if I want to call it a beef, but the one issue I have with the way my translation ends is I don't like it because it actually ends in a question. And remember when we were talking about Jonah, Jonah ended in a question. And there's one other book in Scripture that ends in a question, and that's Nahum, ironically enough. Um, I got the ESB here so we can see exactly how the last part of verse 19 ends, but it says, For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Remember, Jonah ends with the Lord asking, Should I not pity Nineveh? And here it ends with, For upon whom have, has not come your unceasing evil? So it's this question of, you know, you were destroyed, but you, nobody saw the end of how wicked you were. There's these, you know, it was like king after king that was almost worse than the one before them um, throughout many years. Um, and the way, the way my version ends it says, all who hear what happened to you will clap their hands for joy, for no one has escaped your endless cruelty. It ends it like a statement. But in the original text, it's actually a question. And so... You know, it's not that big of an issue again. Uh, but uh, I think the good, so when we, let me kind of make a jump here. When we share the gospel with someone, 
Um, I know I've said before, like we have to get them lost before we can get them saved. Uh, another way to look at this, before we can share the good news with them, we have to share the bad news, right? We have to tell them how, you know, sin has separated them from God. And so we share the bad news first. And this book is, especially, I mean, for the Assyrians, this is a very bad news book. But it is, it's a warning, not just, you know, it's not just a description of what's going to happen to the Assyrians. It's a warning to anyone that opposes God. There's a reason the book of Nahum is in the Bible. It's not just to record the history of what's going to happen. But it's a warning to those that oppose God, to God's enemies. Remember we read Colossians 1, 21 earlier. It says, And you were at one time, strange, at one time strangers and enemies in your minds as expressed through your evil deeds. Um, so one time we were, we were enemies of God. We were, we were at enmity with God, uh, Romans says. But that's the bad news. Verse 22, the very next verse, Colossians chapter 1 says, But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blemish blemish and blameless before him. Um, and so there's there's some good news to it. Um, you cannot, you know, those that oppose God are enemies against God. They're at enmity with God. And um, just like God it was against Assyria and he destroyed them, um, if there's no repentance, if we don't come to Christ and there's no repentance in our lives, then God will oppose us. God will say, I am against you. But for those that believe in him, for those that have been reconciled, um, for those that God, G Christ has reconciled, says, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through, through death to present you holy, without blemish, blemish and blameless before him. Um, and that's how we're presented to God. We're no longer enemies with God. God is no longer against us, but he is for us. God is for us. In, in Matthew chapter 12, um, you know, I said last week, um, we're going to get to Nahum and look at the Paul Harvey rest of the story. But really, the rest of the story happens in Matthew chapter 12. And this is what we get. Jesus is talking. Um, well, I'll just read it. It's Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. It says, some of the experts in the law, along with some Pharisees, answered him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand at the judgment and with this generation, sorry, the people of Nineveh will stand at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented when Jonah preached to them. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So, you know, Jesus is... Um, Jesus is using this example um, well after Nineveh had been wiped off the face of the earth, well after the siege had taken place, and well after the Assyrians had been defeated. Um, but he's saying they're going to stand at judgment with this generation, and I truly believe we're still living in the same time period as, as these people, um, as far as you want to break up 
you know, how God works throughout history and things like that and different covenants he works through. I think we're still living in the same time as this, when it says this generation, it's still talking about our generation. This is not a millennial or Gen Z or, um, you know, whatever kind of generation. This is the generation we are still in today, this age of people. Um, so it says Nineveh is going to stand in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because Nineveh repented, even though they eventually saw destruction, they still they still um, had repented at one point. So those from I think it's it's a both end. Those that had repented, that small group from Nineveh that had repented during the time of Jonah, they'll stand and condemn this generation. But I also think those that didn't repent, when they are faced with their judge, as wicked and evil as the Assyrians were. When those people stand at judgment alongside of this generation, they're going to condemn the wickedness in our generation today. And that's a strong pill to swallow, right? But that's, I think that's what Jesus is saying here. It says, even the queen of the south, remember when the, forget, forget her name, from Egypt came up, um, Sheba, thank you. When she came up and visited Solomon to hear, you know, she heard about his wisdom, um, and how great it was. It says, now something greater than Solomon is here. Uh, obviously talking about himself. And so, um, you know, I don't think we, we don't often like to think about ourselves in this regard, um, as far as those that are, uh, those that are opposed to God. You know, we, we're, uh, we don't like to think about God um, in this, Sorry, I'm looking up another scripture for us here. Um, we don't like to think about God in this um, in this angry, vengeful, destructive, judgmental way. Um, but but that's who God is. You know, we I think oftentimes in our minds, if we don't voice it out loud, we we like to put a separation between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, the God of judgment and the God of love. It's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So He was very loving in the Old Testament, and we overlook those times of love. Because there was so much things like, what, like Nahum, um, but um, like I said last week, he is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But for those that don't come to repentance, um, he's he's against. He's going to oppose. Um, Paul says again in Ephesians chapter two um, how we are. You know, basically objects of wrath. Verse, uh, starting at verse 1, it says, And he made you alive, this is not going to be on the screen, I'm sorry. Um, it says, And he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in lust sorry, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. This is a very, that's very much the bad news. We're by nature children of wrath. Um, verse 4, But God, and that's the good news here, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Verse 6 goes on to say, And raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, let us go walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, again, this is maybe not a picture of you that we like to think about. Um, we want to picture you differently oftentimes. But Lord, I pray that above all else, we would picture you accurately. We will look at the full counsel of scripture and see who you really are in your character and nature. And that we will still choose to worship that God. Because you know you are good. You're very gracious toward us. You're loving toward us. And, and anything um, that's not of you is not good. Um, and we pray that we will cling. I pray that we will cling to that. I pray that we will seek you out as a refuge you are. Because any kind of defense we can make against you is futile. And so I pray that we will instead seek you out and seek the comfort that you have. Just as Nahum's name means comfort, this is a comforting story, not so much to the Syrians, but definitely to the, the people of Judah. And so we thank you for this book. We thank you for this account of history and this prophecy. And we pray that we will be changed people because of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.